Overdrive. Welcome to Overdrive, a program that proudly gives you the alternative facts to all aspects of motoring and transport. I'm Errol Smith, and in this program we look at news stories including Toyota Gazoo Racing winning Le Mans, Toyota's super sports car, Tesla's job cuts, the Auto Pacific 2018 Vehicle Satisfaction Awards, and how Ford and Volkswagen are talking joint vehicles. We discuss an air-cooled Volkswagen that has just broken a motor speed record, but it's not a hotted-up old Beetle. And we road test the Jaguar E-Pace, a small size SUV with a lot of power. Is it an important car for Jaguar? You bet it is. And David Brown and I take a jovial look at some unusual stories of the day, including the psychology of Japanese railways, the MTA bus ads that were a bit too sexy, and a provocative way to ask for directions. Have a question or comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now to begin the program, let's have the news. Saudi Arabia recently ended its status as the last country on earth to prohibit women from driving. Some women drove through the packed streets of the capital, while others drove in convoys around neighbourhoods in celebration of the ban's end. Some commentators say that Saudi Arabia lifted its ban on women driving because of economic necessity, not women's rights. Lifting the ban on driving is likely to increase the number of women seeking jobs boosting the size of the workforce and lifting overall incomes and output, according to economists. The whole economy has been affected by the driving ban. Most employers accept that driving one's wife is a legitimate reason for men not to be present at work. Ford and Volkswagen are in early talks about jointly developing a range of commercial vehicles. The two-car giants said they were exploring a strategic alliance aimed at strengthening both companies' competitiveness without giving details. However, the cooperation would not involve any share swaps or cross-ownership deals. Ford's biggest-selling commercial vehicles are the Transit Van and the F-Series pickup. VW also owns the Scania and Man truck brands. Car companies are increasingly collaborating to cut costs of developing new technology amid a growing demand for more environmentally friendly vehicles. Earlier this year, VW struck a commercial vehicle alliance with Toyota's truck division, Hino. At the time, the firm said areas of cooperation could include hybrid and electric engines, as well as connectivity and autonomous driving systems. Auto Pacific recently announced its 22nd Annual Vehicle Satisfaction Awards, or VSAs, identifying the most satisfying vehicles in the market. An industry benchmark for measuring how satisfied an owner is with his or her new vehicle, VSAs are based on survey responses from over 58,000 owners of new 2017 and 2018 cars and light trucks. Hyundai's Genesis was the most satisfying premium brand edging out Lexus. The Genesis G90 also won the VSA for luxury car for the second year in a row. 
Five Nissan vehicles also won VSAs in their respective segments, the Nissan Maxima, Leaf, Titan, Murano and 370Z. The Audi A3 won for Best Premium Compact Car. Tesla is cutting 9% of its workers as part of a reorganisation designed to reduce costs and help the electric automaker become profitable. The cuts will not affect people working on production lines such as its Model 3 vehicle, which has struggled to scale up since deliveries began last year. CEO Elon Musk said that Tesla had grown and evolved rapidly over the past several years, which has resulted in some duplication of roles and some job functions. The number of Tesla employees has grown 15% in the past six months. It's not clear which departments will be most affected by the cuts. Volkswagen is set to join the growing five-year warranty club in Australia in a move that could prompt extensions among more European manufacturers. In the past year, Ford, Renault, Peugeot, Citroen and Honda have all upped their warranty coverage to five years. Volkswagen's current three-year unlimited kilometre warranty has stayed unchanged since it was first introduced in Australia in 2010. While Volkswagen is considering an extension, many other manufacturers are steadfastly sticking to three-year schemes. Toyota Australia says its customers are happy with the current three-year model and sees no need for an increase. Toyota has confirmed it has started development of a road-going super sports car that uses the same hybrid drivetrain technology as that used in its Le Mans winning Toyota Gazoo Racing TS050 hybrid race car. The announcement coincided with the Japanese carmaker's historic first ever win in the iconic 24-hour Le Mans World Endurance Championship race in France. To further wet fans' appetites, Toyota displayed the GR Super Sport concept car at the Toyota Gazoo Racing Fan Village during the Le Mans race. The car features the same 735 kilowatt or 1000 horsepower twin turbo V6 Toyota hybrid system drivetrain as the Le Mans winning race car. The Gazoo Racing team will return to the track in August in the UK for the six hours of Silverstone. And that has been the news. The event now known as Pikes Peak International Hill Climb is the second oldest motor racing event in America behind the Indianapolis 500. It is a hill climb in every sense of the word as long as you don't think a hill is a gentle gradient. Rather, you think of it as uh, some way towards being a mountain. The hill climb is 20 kilometres long. From the bottom to the top, it raises just over 1.4 kilometres. At the top, it is 4,300 metres above sea level. By comparison, that's close to being halfway up Mount Everest. It's got 156 corners, which is a challenge to any driver, but the environment just adds to the task. The first record was set in 1916 and was just under 21 minutes. It's been broken many times, but just recently, a Volkswagen Special has broken the record well and truly. And to talk about that, I have on the line Kirk McGuinness, the Public Relations Manager for Volkswagen Australia. Kirk, you must be very happy at the moment. 
Extremely happy. What a result. The time? Was 7 minutes, 57.148 seconds. This is a very, very quick time. A quick calculation says it's about 150 kilometres an hour it's averaging with all those bends and that hill. And I tell you what, it's pretty dangerous stuff, isn't it? There's no fence that would stop you going over the edge. There's no room for error. That's absolutely for sure. And it's probably also worth noting that the acceleration of this car, the IDR Pikes Peak, the acceleration's faster than a Formula One car. So we're talking north to 100 kilometres an hour in 2.25 seconds. So if you could sort of just imagine the, the sort of acceleration and the braking that would be required to sort of um, you know, set a time like that, it's, uh, it's quite a feat. And of course, it's not a petrol engine, is it? No, it's not. So we're uh, fully electric. And we're talking a 500 kilowatt system that's running with two lithium-ion batteries. A petrol engine actually has a disadvantage by the time it gets so high up, going up 1.4 kilometres at the top, doesn't it? That's a difficulty for petrol engine vehicles. Yeah, it is. And also, it's probably worth noting that the, the Pikes Peak event in itself is, uh, is quite challenging from a, uh, an engineering point of view, simply because the, the temperature and the environment can change so radically. I mean, you can sort of have, particularly up on that mountain, you can have just above freezing temperatures, and then you can also have blistering summer heat. And it's not even about keeping a car cool sometimes as much as it is about keeping it at the optimum temperature. Each sort of class of vehicle and each sort of drivetrain type uh, requires its own sort of engineering and to set something like this in an electric vehicle which obviously is capable of pulling some some pretty serious speeds then yeah you've you've got to keep that heating sort of temperature at an optimum level rather than being too hot or too cold it's the it's the goldilocks approach of uh, motorsport i guess you could say (laughs) it's lovely to think that it's got a similarity to the old beetle really isn't it that it's air cooled it has two engines two electric engines Yeah, and two batteries Mm. as well. They're both fed by the two lithium-ion batteries. It's a combined approach of having the batteries and the engines together to make 500 kilowatts. See, 500 kilowatts is is very good, there's no doubt about it, yet there's plenty of internal combustion engines that would do that. It's also showcasing the electric motor as having its great power from zero revs from start. Absolutely. I mean, it's, that's, that's always going to be the, uh, the great sort of uh, selling point for electric vehicles is instantaneous torque and immediate performance. And, you know, I mean, that, that certainly carries across to, uh, to passenger vehicles and even sort of um, light commercials that are sort of looking at carrying this drivetrain as well. But certainly the application for, uh, for performance and for motorsport is, is enormous. You're on the Electric Vehicle Council in Australia. I am. Only a few weeks ago uh, minted, but yes, yes, I am. It's certainly a very, very exciting time uh, to be on the council and, uh, and you know, in the industry as, as a whole. I mean, you know, what a, what a radical change we're sort of seeing in a very, very short space of time. And this is symbolic more than being necessarily what you or I are going to drive down the road, but it is very symbolic too. Uh, and I think Tesla, I won't ask you to comment on them, but, you know, made it much more sexy it used to be the electric car was the backyard engineers guy who stripped out an old (laughs) hyundai now they're becoming not only efficient and good for the environment but also just fantastic performers I think that's probably the uh, the real draw card with with electric vehicles, and you know, gone are the days where those that sort of would be looking to buy electric vehicles necessarily, or even sort of you know some of the earlier hybrids, 
were almost there was a sense of sort of self-flagellation there in that they sort of felt that they were paying for the sins of the world. The Australian market has often been seen as a bit of a test market. We have a huge number of brands here, more than America. Is it important to be seen in this market to be pushing the new technology? Because it will develop and it will get better. Is that part of an important part of a car manufacturer's image at the moment? Absolutely. I mean, electric vehicles are um, a big part of the, the auto industry's future. But to sort of look at Australia as a test case, Australia is actually in many cases sort of fertile ground because we, we also have the dual issue of our fuel quality. So Australia has, quite disappointingly, but Australia has some of the, the poorest fuel quality in the developed world. So we're in the same sort of categories as, you know, the Bolivias and Tanzanias of the world. What will happen in the case of Australia is that in many cases, and certainly Volkswagen is is no exception to this, is that vehicles will stop arriving in Australia simply because the drivetrain technology will not keep up with our fuel standards. And by that I mean our fuel standards are so low that the uh, it just won't be compatible. So electric vehicles, particularly from a manufacturer point of view, is something that absolutely needs to get right. And Australia is definitely one of those cases where it's, it's imperative. And it's pollution, reducing pollution too, at two levels, both a global concept, but also local. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Even if it takes a lot of energy to build an electric car at the moment, and that should get better, we don't want polluting cars in a local sense in inner city areas. No, absolutely. And and that's something that, you know, the groups like the EV Council sort of look at because obviously the argument could be made that we can have electric vehicles that require charge and, and don't produce emissions. But then, of course, where does that energy source come from? And we're burning fossil fuels to, to create the, the charging mm. solution in the first place. There is sort of obviously a, uh, a look at that as well and, and there is a, a need to sort of look at energy as a whole and how that sort of affects electric vehicles and their rollout. But, but certainly that's something that the EV Council is looking at and has partnered with um, energy companies as well to, you know, to sort of address that. And that's a very serious and intense debate, but there's also the yeehaw of winning motorsport. <laughs> Absolutely. Which Volkswagen has just done with an electric vehicle. Kurt, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. That's Kurt McGuinness, the Public Relations Manager for Volkswagen Australia, talking about Volkswagen's win in the Pikes Peak Hill Climb with the first time ever breaking the record with an electric vehicle. You're listening to Overdrive. Recently, Jaguar released their second SUV onto the Australian market. Their first was the F-Pace, a medium-sized sports utility vehicle, but this new one, the E-Pace, is smaller. Should Jaguar build SUVs? Every car company can benefit from the economies of scale of building more vehicles. Even if you do not want to be the manufacturer for the masses, the SUV market is a fruit ripe to be picked. Practically all luxury vehicle brands are venturing into the SUV segment. If Bentley and Rolls can do it, so can Jaguar. 57% of the worldwide luxury car market is SUVs. What about, though, Jaguar's sibling brand, Land Rover, which includes Range Rover? They may have started with rugged off-roaders, but they are now firmly in the comfortable-to-luxurious four-wheel drives. But Land Rover, for all its indulgence in comfort, still makes vehicles that are well-suited for the rough stuff. 
Jaguar SUVs are much more all-wheel drive vehicles. The drive selector gives you a choice of economy, normal and dynamic, as well as rain, ice and snow. The toughest conditions it will face come from a quick trip down to the ski fields. On the other hand, Land Rover, with additional driving mode choices such as sand and rocky roads, maintains a more off-road capability. So the Jaguar has elegance, style, comfort and, depending on the engine, a real lot of power. On the outside, it has a fastback look, unlike its bigger brother, the F-Pace, which is more traditionally squarish. But E-Pace maintains enough design cues, hints if you like, of the Jaguar brand style, which comes together so well in the F-Type sports car. There are five engines, but all of them are two litres in capacity. There's three diesel and two petrol. The difference in output has a lot to do with how much effort comes from the turbochargers. The entry-level diesel has 110 kilowatts, with a rated fuel consumption of 5.6 litres per 100. The middle diesel, 132 kilowatts, also rated at 5.6 litres per 100 kilometres. I don't understand that. And the top-of-the-range diesel, a very impressive 177 kilowatts, with a rated fuel consumption of 6.2 litres per 100, and an amazing 500 newton metres of torque for this small SUV. This is a serious amount of low-down pulling power. The petrol engine starts at 183 kilowatts, 7.7 litres per 100 fuel consumption, and that's no slouch. But the top of the range has 221 kilowatts. That's 10% more than a Subaru WRX, and exactly the same as the Subaru WRX STI, that boy racer hot sedan that comes with bulges, flared panels and a huge wing on the back. This top-of-the-range E-Pace is rated at 8 litres per 100. All this is helped by a 9, yes 9, speed automatic gearbox, but there are no paddles. It went very well, handling more like Jaguar than its F-Pace brother. The road noise, though, was a bit high. The rear luggage space is 484 litres, with the rear seats up. That's very good. A BMW X1 is 360 litres, and the Audi Q2 is better, but still just above 400 litres. The Jag SUV is better than many hatches on the market. The E-Pace Jaguar is probably a one and a half small SUV in size. There's a 10 inch interior information screen, which can be optioned up to a 12.3 inch full color screen. Plush leather abounds. There's a couple of interesting features. There are up to four 12 volt charging points and five USB connections, one for each occupant. As well, there is a 4G Wi-Fi hotspot for up to eight devices. It has blind spot monitoring, which is linked to the electronic steering, so it will give you a tug on the steering wheel if you go to change lanes in a way that risks a collision. Now, the overall pricing is surprising. There are five equipment levels with the E-Pace. The base model starts at 47750 plus driveway costs. To go to the E-Pace S, you add an extra $7,500. The SE is a further $4,800. And the HSE is nearly $5,600 extra on top of all that. 
To go from the base model diesel to the highest powered diesel, you have to add an extra $8,800. For the two petrol engines, the difference is $6,400. That means that the top of the range HSE with the most powerful engine, the P300, is priced at $77,500 plus on-road. Mind you, some of the options can be expensive as well. It's actually a pretty good way to get into a Jaguar, albeit if you are prepared to accept that it is an SUV, but nonetheless, it goes like the clappers if you get the most powerful engine and it handles as a Jaguar should. This is Overdrive across Australia. Ah, and finally we can put our feet up and lay back a bit and just pontificate on some of the more light-hearted stories to do with motoring and transport. And joining me again this week is our good friend Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. Errol, the amazing psychology of Japanese train stations. <laughs> now, we all know that uh, Japanese trains run to an unheard-of level of accuracy, Back on May the 11th, the West Japanese Railways issued a florid apology after one of its commuter trains left the station 25 seconds early. Unheard of. Oh, dear. Someone's got to, got to get the boot for that. <laughs> Apparently the guy had to apologise and all. It was quite a thing. But how do they organise this? They have huge number of people going through stations. Well, it's not necessarily with military precision... Now, it might have that precision, but not with that command. And rather than use the very heavy-handed approach, they use a lot of what they call the nudge theory. Apparently, this was pioneered by behavioural economist Richard Thaler, who was awarded the 2017 Nobel Memorial Prize for his work. And it was also Harvard Law School professor Cass Sunstein. And a theory posits that gentle nudges can subtly influence people towards decisions in their own societies or their, even their own best interests. Now, if you've seen what they do in some of these things, apparently in London, they have a whole department of not quite nudge theories, but a whole department to try and use this type of approach. And so uh, waiting to get onto the escalators, well, it'd be good if people formed two queues. We tend to form one queue and then divide when we get onto the escalators, either the slow or the quick. If you form two queues and, in fact, don't walk up the escalators, pack tightly together and just stand on them and go up at the speed of the escalator, that's the best thing to do. So they put stencils of feet on the ground and hands and people follow those. Would, mm. you, would, that, would that convince you, Errol? I don't know if I'd notice it, but I, I suppose that's the idea, that it, it's an almost subconscious nudge in the, in the right direction. And uh, apparently Jap Japan's all over this. They've got, all, like, uh, they've got little blue lights near the ends of the platforms because apparently blue light has a calming effect. And suicide's a big issue. Suicide is a big problem in Japan, uh, especially in their rail network. Apparently one a day people throw themselves off a railway line. Actually, it's quite significant in Australia too. And a lot of train drivers have had the very traumatic situation of someone suiciding in front of them. And many of them sort of say they'll never forget the look on the face of the person as they do it. Mm. It's one a week, I think it is. It's usually hushed up. Mm. Well, not hushed up, but certainly not publicised. No. 
The other one is that they play a an obtrusive high-frequency tone, 17 kilohertz apparently, but that can only be heard by those under 25 years of age, and so it discourages young people loitering but doesn't worry older people. <laughs> almost torture, isn't it? It might be. That'd be like having a having a mosquito buzzing around your head, wouldn't it? High pitched noise. <laughs> Tinnitus or something, isn't it? The, uh, Tinnitus, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. There are little subtle things. Even to the point that I think everyone who works for the railways then if they do something they have to point and call out. They can't just say something. Physically pointing at an object, then verbalising it, your your intention, a greater portion of the brain is engaged, providing improved situational awareness and accuracy. Wow. I had no idea trains were so complicated. (laughs) Clearly, we're not using these techniques. (laughs) No. No. No, I mean, mean, if if a train left 25 seconds early here, I think it would be a miracle. (laughs) It's actually the previous train running, you know, 32 and a half minutes late. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, I, I, I've got something that I don't think you'll ever see on the front of a Japanese train, mm-hmm. but it's on the front of an, an American bus. Uh, it, um, it says in huge letters, Museum of Sex. So it's an ad. <laughs> it is an ad. It's not what the bus is about. It's just an ad. Yes. Uh, it's an ad for the Museum of Sex, which is apparently a um, bit of a sort of a, a tourist trap in the area in, in Manhattan. It's caused quite a bit of controversy for especially the drivers with, of course, a lot of people getting on the bus and then immediately saying to the driver, oh, is this the Museum of Sex? Highly unoriginal. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, apparently some of the female drivers were thinking that, you know, this was uh, encouraging a little bit of sexual harassment and, and so on. So, uh, but... The um, Museum of Sex has, of course, claimed that uh, the ads are protected by the, the First Amendment because they're free speech. <laughs> well, of course, in America, because of the Second Amendment, you could shoot them. Yes. <laughs> I wrote one of the first policy books for a motoring club, and my point was that no ads on buses or trucks or, or taxis or whatever should be distracting to the point that it's a safety issue. Yes. Yeah, this whole thing, to my mind, is remarkably cheap. I think mm. it's creepy. I, I, I'm sorry, yes, I just don't. Yeah, well, it does. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me because it, it literally that's all it says. Like it doesn't say visit the Museum of Sex. Yes. Or visiting the city. Come and see. Uh, come and see the Museum of Sex. Yeah. Still, a, a short story. I hope. Well, if you pardon the expression, that we end uh, this round of quirky news. And I thank you once again, Errol for your time and your contribution. All right, David. And that's Errol Smith. And we were talking the more unusual, sometimes semi-serious, sometimes downright sad stories that are in some ways related to motoring and transport. This has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Brown, Brian Smith, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network 
And you can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm Errol Smith. Thanks for listening.